Hey everybody, this is Marshall jumping in once again to pitch the Patreon page. Come on over to patreon.com slash journey into and check out all the cool stuff I have available over there. Uh, one of which is early access to most all of the episodes of this podcast. I just uploaded the latest episode of Outfield Excursions where Rish and I talk about Hercules starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. The first of a two-part series where we talk about two Hercules-based movies that came out in 2014. It's a lot of fun. Come over and join us. But right now, let's talk about some more Alfred Hitchcock. So, Rish, are we going to spoil this movie for our listeners today? Oh, yeah, dude. We're going to spoil the crap out of this movie. Be warned, folks. There will be spoilers. Hey there, everybody. Marshall Latham here to talk about movies with Rish Outfield here on a Outfield Excursions episode. How are you doing, Rish? Doing doing fine. It's cool to do another one of these so soon. The, Vertigo was the last episode, right, that aired? Yes. And then at the end of that, you said we would be back for Rope. We switched those up, and I can't remember why. Is it just because I watched Vertigo first? I think you had gotten Rope from the library, and you were interested in it because of 1917. Right, right. And then in the meantime, before I had had a chance to get it and watch it, you had also watched Vertigo and fell so much in love with that that we just decided to do that one first. Well, that's cool. It's just great that we've got, you know, extra episodes in. Hopefully anyone listening appreciates that. Yeah. But this is our twofer of Alfred Hitchcock films. <laughs> and Rope was released in 1948. Is that right? Yeah, 1948. I had just assumed that it was around the same time as Vertigo that Jimmy Stewart just, you know, did like four movies in a row for Hitchcock. But no, they're spaced over uh, a dozen years. I think this was the first that Hitchcock did with Stewart. And Vertigo was the last. But yeah, this came out in the fall of 48. It's definitely a, a different style in that decade from this. I guess one of the main differences of this movie is that it's filmed as a play. It's adapted from a play, and so it's filmed much like a play. There's only one location, one set, I guess you could say, for the for the entire movie. And that's in this New York apartment, upscale apartment, overlooking the city of New York. And so that plays a lot into how Hitchcock filmed this. And I think one of the main reasons he wanted to do the movie in the first place. Well, that's definitely how I first heard of the movie was, did you know Hitchcock made a movie all in one take? And I was like, really? In one take? And it's like, yeah, just like there's no cuts. It's just a whole movie like that, you know, like a play, like live television. And I was just like, oh, that sounds fascinating. This one I saw as an adult. I never saw it as a kid. I think we talked about that in Vertigo, that I was a, a boy when I first saw Vertigo and then never saw it again over all these years. And, and this one, yeah, I think this is the second time I've seen it in 10 years or so. But again, that's the thing that I took from it 
uh, from the very beginning is let's just watch and see if you can catch the the cuts and you know a little bit more about the background of this movie than I do but apparently the there were crew members just like running around like crazy moving set dressing moving walls out of the way so that the camera could move right uh, replacing props and that and then they would switch out the lighting in the skyline so it looked to be getting later in the day and yeah uh, that makes me appreciate the movie on another level the the reason that i wanted us to watch this was because 1917 that world war 1 movie that alas didn't win best picture was presented in the exact same way of like no cuts this is all one 2 hour take and that helped immerse at least me into the film it ratcheted up the tension as the movie went on because we're just used to cuts we're used to you know different shots from different points of view yeah and the fact that it was in real time and there was a ticking clock from the very first scene really helped make that movie stressful and focus your attention in it whereas in this one i was just aware every time that there was a cut yes and i just i i i didn't focus on the the story as much as i just focused on oh oh did you see that see that how they did that oh the camera isn't on anybody right now and yet they're still talking that stuff was really really interesting yeah i didn't uh, seek that when i was watching it i i mean i knew about it because we had talked about it but some of them were fairly obvious Several of them focused in on the back of somebody, and so the film goes dark, and then that person walks past the camera. You know, that's when he splits the shot. And one of the things I was watching about it, I guess at the time, the cameras that they were using, and this was like just, well, maybe not just, but Technicolor cameras were the, the latest thing, and this was filmed in Technicolor, and they were humongous cameras. And I guess they only ran about 10 minutes of film before he had to switch them out. And so he had to figure out, he had it all planned out and plotted out of exactly when the 10 minutes would be up. And they had to practice everything and everybody had to be in place. And and like you said, things had to be moved. And apparently there was also just cables and wires all over the floor. <laughs> and the actors had to be careful not to trip over things and they had to remember where things were at at certain times. Uh, Jimmy Stewart was quoted, they were being interviewed about the movie and I don't know if Alfred Hitchcock or somebody else was talking before him and they're talking about all the rehearsals and practices that they were doing and and uh, he kind of made a quip of, well I haven't done much rehearsing but that camera sure has done a lot of rehearsing on what we're going to do. <laughs> and so it was more of a technical movie than an actor's movie, I guess you could say. But at that time, you know, Alf, that's what Alfred Hitchcock was into. Uh, he was jumping up on the cameras and looking at the shots and doing those kinds of things. So I think that's what excited him so much about it. And I guess famously, I think we talked about this with Vertigo too, is he didn't care much about the actors or the acting. He wasn't a great actor's director. He just said, I'll do your thing and I'll catch it on film. And so... I guess that was definitely the case on this movie. I can imagine what a challenge this was. Uh, unless you came from the theater, 
in which case you are used to having the whole thing memorized and you do it all from start to finish without any retakes, without any chances to do it over again in front of an audience. Uh, I would really enjoy seeing Rope as the play that it started out as. Right, yeah. Because I, f I feel like that would be fascinating. Uh, and also when you see a play, you're able to suspend your disbelief in a way that it's harder in a movie. One bad special effect or one bad line reading or whatever in a movie can take you out of it. But in a play, you f you choose to pretend that there aren't other people sitting next to you and, you know, that there aren't curtains and all that stuff. I, there's something kind of magical about that that agreement that you have, that unspoken agreement with the, the players. And, you know, if there is a screwed up line or whatever, you know, it's just you don't you don't call attention to it. They just continue on. And, and well, they're two very different mediums, but this is, this is totally like watching a play except for the, the camera gets right in there and there are zooms and there are pans. And I don't know. I, I, I think it would be, there wasn't a commentary right on the, on the DVD. Not a commentary, but I had, there was like a little uh, 30 minute feature that on my DVD where they, talked to a lot of some of the actors in the screenplay is it Hume Cronin is that how you pronounce his name yeah Hume Cronin was the the guy that adapted the screenplay he wrote this the treatment yeah when I saw him I'm like oh I know him from something and I, I think it was Cocoon <laughs> but uh yeah he was one of the ones in Cocoon yeah so I knew him more as a, of an actor and I guess he mainly was an actor but yeah he talked a little bit about his involvement in it where Hitchcock had come to him and says, hey, I, I want to adapt this play. Uh, can you help me work it out? You know, how we're going to do this. And it was, I guess, according to Hume, uh, Hitchcock always did like a, a little treatment of the piece without all the scripting and, and, you know, the screenplay, but just kind of a treatment of how were we going to do this. And that's what uh, Hume Cronin helped him with. So yeah, there there was a lot of that kind of stuff, and that's where I learned about you know all the cables and you know how involved the camera shots and and set was. Yeah, what what I would like though is people who are experts on the, on how this film was made talking while you watch the movie, saying, okay, so what is happening right now is that there are three grips pulling the far wall out of the way so that the camera can go there. And they, they describe how big the camera is. And just, you know, the things that are being done to trick us into believing that we, what we're seeing. Because, yeah, there were a couple of moments where I, I thought, okay, how did they do that? And, you know, like moments where the camera doesn't do a cut and yet the, the lighting changes and... There, there was one I noticed where it cut just to Jimmy Stewart. In, in the article I read, it said that a reel in a movie theater was 20 minutes long. Oh, 20 minutes. Okay, they said 10 minutes. And so they had to cut, they, they had to prepare for that. Every 20 minutes, the projectionist in a theater is going to be loading up another reel. And so it didn't matter at the end of 20 minutes to try and trick the, the audience into believing that it, was, that it was all one take. You could just do a cut at the very end of a reel. And so there are apparently two or three. I only noticed one uh, where it was just a cut. 
but uh, like every 10 minutes, yeah, you would get a, what do you call it? Like a trick. Like there was the part where he opens up the case and and you see the, 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 the top of the case and then that's a cut. And then when he, they close the case again or when they move away from the case, it's a new shot. I don't know. I, I, I just, I would love to know you know, how many times they'd have to do certain things over again, or somebody trips over one of those wires and it all has to be done, or somebody flubs a line and it all has to be done again. That would be so stressful, unless you were a theater actor and you were used to that. And it's like, you know, no, that's, we just go on. And yeah, I guess the same thing for, you know, like the stagecraft, you know, if you were work used to working behind the stage and, and doing all these things, you know, maybe you'd have the skills to pull this off too. But I think, again, there, the big difference is you got these giant cameras and all these cables <laughs> that you have to figure out. Let's talk about the story of Oh, rope. the story. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it's possible that people haven't seen it. No, I'm sure, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how fun it is to listen to two dudes talk about a movie that you haven't seen. But, but every once in a while, there is a, a movie podcast I've listened to where they say it's a bad movie or it's a movie that is just like, you know, I'm never going to see that. And I'm fine to just listen to them talk about it. And so, I, I, I you know, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess, you know, everybody should know, but if you haven't listened to this, you know, definitely spoilers. We're going to talk about all of the elements of the movie, including the ending and and stuff. So if you don't want to hear that and you want to watch Rope first, then please do so because <laughs> we're going to spoil it. Um, I, I think this one, you know, the last couple times we've gone through the movie, we've spent a lot of time going through each, you know, kind of the progression of the plot line. And this one's probably a little bit more easy to just summarize. And so I guess I'll do that <laughs> unless you want to. Yeah, go go ahead. So the movie, Rope, starts out with the murder right away. We, we see a man being strangled to death, and then it pans away from him, and we see that there's two people in this big, huge apartment room, or I guess this big penthouse suite, and they, they talk about how they planned this murder, and that it's the perfect murder you can tell one of the guys is definitely feeling guilty about it. And the other one, so Brandon and Philip are the two men that have killed David Kentley. And as they talk about it, they basically believe that they are intellectually superior to other people. And so that gives them the right to murder and to make those kinds of decisions for inferior people. And I guess they viewed David as one of those inferior people. Out of this, David Kentley had his last drink. It should have been ginger ale or even beer. I always thought it was uh, out of character for David to drink anything as, as corrupt as whiskey. Out of character for him to be murdered, too. <laughs> yes, wasn't it? Good Americans usually die young on the on the battlefield, don't they? Well, the Davids of this world merely occupy space, which is why he was the perfect victim for the perfect murder. 
Of course, he, uh, he was a Harvard undergraduate. <laughs> that might make it justifiable homicide. He's dead and we've killed him. But he's still here. In less than eight hours, he'll be resting gently but firmly at the bottom of a lake. Meanwhile, he's here. And as the as it progresses, we le- we learn that their professor or somebody that had taught those things and and kind of the the Superman or Uberman, or is it Nietzsche? Yeah, Frederick Nietzsche, I think, had that Ubermensch idea of there are some people who are born better than the others, and you know these are the people whose birthright it is to rule to make the decisions that common men don't. That they're not capable of making. Right, which which led to the Third Reich and Hitler and, and all that kind of you know, that was their mentality. And they even mention that on in the in the movie here. But that so that's kind of the beginning of the movie, and then they're they're having a dinner party and they're they're almost reveling, or at least Brandon is reveling in the fact that David's father and or David's parents are coming over and his fiance or girlfriend is coming over and her former boyfriend he's invited all these people and david is dead in the room and they're going to have this party around david and they uh, they put him in this trunk and then he kind of has the ironic idea to serve the food from the trunk and so they move all of the uh, fixings and tablecloth and everything over to this trunk and and he just thinks he's so clever and and Philip, on the other hand, is still, you know, feeling the guilt of it. He thinks they're going to get caught. And they, they've also invited their former professor, who is uh, Rupert Cadell, who is played by Jimmy Stewart. And uh, so he comes to the party. I think the only other person that comes is their maid, where they live. And Rupert knows her as well. He kind of flirts with her a little bit as they go on. But so that's that's pretty much the setup for the movie is this party and all these people coming and all the discussions that happen and eventually uh, Rupert becomes suspicious that something is going on and he can't quite figure it out. And so it's kind of him working out what's going on with Philip and Brandon as they go through the movie. And then he starts to have his suspicions And eventually people start to say, where's David? He should be here by now. And they call his home and figure out that he's not there. And and that's definitely weaved through the conversation um, at the party. And eventually people go home. But we're we're hoping, I guess, or we're supposed to hope that, that Rupert can figure it out and that these guys will be found out. And it's kind of one of those situations where Part of the time, you're hoping that they don't get caught, or not hoping, but you know the suspense is built around, are they going to get caught, and you don't know what's going to happen, kind of featuring the, their cleverness, or at least Brandon's being pleased with himself over all of this. Uh, but even he cracks every once in a while. And so that's that's kind of how this develops, and then... I don't know if you want to talk about the ending right now or not, but... Well, we almost don't have to. It is fun to watch knowing that the body is there. Right. Because there are a couple of times when, like, the housekeeper is like, oh, no, no, let's move this, let's get... And 
or somebody is about to open it or uh, looks at it a little too closely. And it's like, what are these two killers going to do? It, it, this is something that Hitchcock was so famous for, where he would talk about suspense. He, I, I don't know if we've discussed this before, but Hitchcock famously said, you know, you can have a scene where a bomb explodes in a restaurant and it startles the audience. Or you can show the bomb and that it's under a table in the restaurant and then it doesn't explode. And the audience will be on the edge of their seats waiting, knowing that the bomb is there. All of the scenes of the people in the restaurant and having their conversations and eating their food will become unbearable as the audience is aware that the bomb is, th is there. Uh, it's something that happened over and over again where he would show the audience something. You know, that, that, that the dead body is there. Or uh, in Psycho's case, you know, that the, the briefcase full of stolen money is right there. <laughs> and will she get caught? Oh, here comes the policeman. Surely she has been found out. It, oh, it's great. And, the, and that's the trick of this is in the very first scene, we see this body being put into the crate. And then all of the rest of the movie takes place around this box. Right. And, and we know what's in it. Will they be found out? And a couple of the times, Philip is, I mean, he's just so high strung <laughs> uh, that it is that, I, like you said, I don't know that we want him to spill the beans, but we are we enjoy watching him come closer and closer or, or say something wrong or react wrong at one point he breaks a glass when somebody says the wrong thing yeah and that sort of stuff is really really cool i know that the screenwriter uh, do you remember what his name was it was arthur laurentis or lorenz yeah yeah okay Ar Ar arthur lawrence okay like 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 jennifer lawrence uh he said that in the script that he wrote, it starts after they have killed David and put him in the box. And that he wanted the audience to, to wonder throughout the movie, did they really kill a guy? Is there somebody? Are they just, were they fantasizing? Were they trying to build themselves up over it and all that? And he felt like it did a disservice to his script for Hitchcock to show the killing at the very beginning. I don't know that we'll ever know because you, that's the first thing that you see. But what I do know is that there's a scene at the very end of the movie when Jimmy Stewart's character says, I'm going to open up that box. And Brandon says, yes, yes, go ahead. Go ahead and open it, you know. <laughs> you might not like what you see. And, and, and Jimmy Stewart says, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that there's nothing in there. Brandon. Brandon, I'm tired. And in a way, I'm frightened, too. But I don't want to fence anymore. What are you going to do? I don't want to. But I'm going to look inside that chest. Are you crazy? I hope so. With all my heart, I hope I'm crazy. Uh, Rupert, this has nothing to do with you. It got to. Don't. Uh, Rupert. Got to look inside that chest. All right. Go ahead and look. I hope you like what you see. And, and that was the scene that I liked the best because for a moment I thought maybe he won't do it. 
Maybe he'll, you know what I mean? It's like get right up to the precipice and then be like, no, no, you know, I I have to have been wrong or something like that. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed that because once he opens it, he knows whether he's right or wrong. Right. That these, these two students of his, protégés, friends of his, are murderers. And until you open that case, you always have the element of doubt. You can always go to sleep that night saying they have a macabre sense of humor, but lots of people do. That doesn't make them murderers. Yeah. Well, and... Um, and oh, go ahead. No, I'm just saying if Lawrence is right then we were sort of robbed of that suspense of, no, 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 open it, I want to know. But if Hitchcock was right, then that scene wouldn't have worked because, you know, we would care more about whether David was actually dead than whether these two killers would be found out. Yeah, and I think Lawrence is right about that scene. That scene probably would have been better. But I think overall the movie would have been a lot drier not knowing that there was a body in that trunk. To me, the, the best part of this movie is James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart in the, in the Rupert role. Because at one point in the movie, he's preaching the same thing that... Oh, that scene is so great because David's father is sitting right next to him and he's saying, I... I, I, I don't know if you're joking. If you're joking, it's in poor taste. Because he's saying things like, think, if, if, if you could be free to kill people, think you, you wouldn't have to wait in line anymore. And, and you wouldn't, the, the congestion and the traffic and, and, and getting tickets to the, the theater, it would all be taken care of. Right. And, and he goes and, and he, he takes it farther and farther and he's just like, we would have like a day, a day that it's okay to, to strangle somebody oh, yeah. and a, a week when it's okay to shoot people. Now, you don't really approve of murder, Rupert, if I may. You may, and I do. Think of the problems it would solve. Unemployment, poverty, standing in line for theater tickets. I must say I've had a perfectly dreadful time getting tickets for that new musical. What's it called? You know. The something with what's-her-name <laughs> My dear Miss Atwater, careful application of the trigger finger and a pair of seats in the first row is yours for the shooting. And have you had any difficulty in getting into our velvet rope restaurant? Frightful! A very simple matter. A flick of the knife, madame. And if you'll kindly step this way... Oh, no, a step <laughs> over the head waiter's body. Thank you. And here's your table. <laughs> Rupert, you're the end. There's a hotel clerk I could cheerfully flick a knife at. Oh, no. Sorry. Knives may not be used on hotel employees. They are in the death by slow torture category. Oh. <laughs> along with bird lovers, small children, and tap dancers. So dark. Yeah. And he's having just so much fun saying this stuff. And the other two are just eating it up. And you can imagine how they were when they were teenagers or however old they were when they were his students and hearing him say these things and they just took it to heart. Yeah, because, you know, you kind of get the feeling not only in that scene, but in other scenes with Rupert that he likes being the, the one that makes people feel uncomfortable or he likes being the smart person in the room and kind of playing with, with people. You know, that, that's kind of his thing. 
And yeah, in that scene, you know, he, he starts talking about it and then Brandon kind of jumps on it and he keeps going with it. And he really goes whole hog on, on the idea. And yeah, like you said, uh, David's father, Mr. Kentley gets really upset and finally just kind of stands up like, Hey, I'm, I'm not going to listen to this anymore. And then he kind of calms down and everything. But like you were saying earlier too, with Rupert, he doesn't want to believe he's suspicious of things and the clues that he's picking up and the fact that David is missing and, and hasn't showed up, you know, he starts to put the pieces together and he's, he has his suspicions on what's going on, but he doesn't want to believe it. And so he's kind of like letting it go. I thought another really good element, and I'm sure, it, I don't know if it was from the play or, or not, but everybody's leaving and he goes to leave as well. And the maid goes to the closet to get his coat and hat. And she gives him the hat and he puts it on. And then she's kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong hat. And she goes to get the other one, and he takes it off his head, and he looks at the inside of the hat, and it has David's initials in it. And then he knows that David has been there. That's when it becomes clear to him that, that his suspicions are correct. And then he leaves, and then, of course, they, they thought they got away with it. Uh, but then he comes back under the ruse that he left his cigarette case there, and he kind of makes them feel uncomfortable and asks more questions. And, you know, Brandon goes from being, you know, playing the same game to being nervous to, kind of, you know, he kind of goes back and forth. And then, like the scene we already talked about where he says, I think David is in that box and I'm going to open that box. And that's pretty much the climax of the, the movie. He does go out to the window and shoot a gun in the air so that people will be aroused and call the police. And as we leave the the movie, he sits down next to the chest where the body's at. And Brandon, realizing that they're going to get caught, he just starts pouring some alcohol and, and drinking it. And then Philip is a piano player. And so he just goes over and starts playing the piano. And that's kind of where it ends. I, I don't know. I, I really liked it watching the the suspense parts that, you know, Alfred is, is caring about. And then I guess, you know, I'm always a sucker for Jimmy Stewart. I just think he's, I like to watch him act. And he, I think he always does a great job of the charm and the character and the, you know, the suspicions that he has and things like that. But, and I was a little bit worried because I, I watched it like 20 years ago or more, maybe 20, 23 years ago or something. And I remember it being a very, I remembered it being kind of dry and boring. And so I thought, oh, well, well, I'll just watch it and see what it is. So, But I really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would this time around. And it's probably just because I understood more of what they were talking about and didn't quite understand all of the Nietzsche and those types of ideas. But now I can understand a little better and I enjoyed the suspense of it that was there. Yeah, I, like I said, I would really like to see it as a play. I think that's how it would have worked the best. And I wonder how the film would be different or would feel different had Hitchcock not done the, the gimmick, which, I mean, essentially that's what it is of the single take. Oh, I think the, the DVD had the trailer on it. I wish I had watched the trailer. Was that 
a big part of the selling and the marketing of this film was that it's all one take. I don't imagine that people would have cared so much back then. No, uh, it's actually funny that the trailer shows David and his fiance in a park. And they're talking, sitting at a bench, talking about this and that and the engagement and kind of their plans for their future. You can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment. I'm staying right here. Oh, afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's Park. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Five. And he's walking away, and then James Stewart comes out. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. <laughs> and, and it just and then it goes a little bit into the couple couple scenes from the movie. So it's a scene that doesn't even show up in the movie. Made for the trailer, do you think? Or I think it's just made for the trailer. Yeah. That's interesting cuz yeah, the the actor who plays David is credited and the credits are actually in chronological order. And so he's first billed at the end of credits. And I was just surprised that he had a credit at all because to me he was a prop he was already dead the second that we see him uh, and i was just thinking about making a, a version of rope today that's exactly like this <laughs> and getting like some huge a-list celebrity to play david <laughs> and he's strangled in the first second of the movie but the gimmick, and I, I, I'm calling it that. I, I know that's a pejorative. I don't mean it as, uh, you know, the thing that sucked about this movie. But the selling point of the movie is so unique and so unusual that I feel like that's got to be the most outlandish of any that Hitchcock ever did. But I remember Dial M for Murder, which was just a couple years after this, was shot in 3D. Hitchcock had done a 3D movie. Oh, you know, Psycho was famous for the uh, the no one will be allowed into the theater after the first, geez, it was like five minutes or something like that kind of thing. And, and he expected theaters to actually enforce this. It seems like there might have been another movie with a gimmick like that. And then, of course, William Castle uh, took this idea and ran with it. Right. It just went whole hog. I don't know if you're a fan of William Castle, but his movies are bad, but so watchable and so fun. I'd love to see like the Tingler in a theater with the Tingle-matic or whatever, or see House on Haunted Hill with the skeleton that comes out into the audience or, uh, you know, just some some of those that... That's the whole reason that, you know, people went to see it is because it was unlike anything you'd ever seen before. Right. So the movie that Hitch make, made immediately after this was Under Capricorn, and we talked about that. And he he repeated some of the gimmick in that. Huh. But it was more just in, it's all in one location, and 
It's all like one super extended take within that location so that it feels more like a play. But they didn't, they didn't do the tricky cuts that are invisible kind of thing on that. It was just something where I, I don't know if Hitchcock had a very limited amount of time to make it. And he's like, let's do that again or whatever. But you would get like a seven or eight minute long cut. Unfortunately, that movie was super, super dull and... I, I wouldn't recommend it at all. I just wow. didn't like it. Um, it was boring, and it was a it was a period romance, not a suspense movie, not a mystery, not a shocker, not a thriller, not anything that Hitchcock was famous for. I'd love to know the history behind that movie because Dollars to Donuts, somebody else was set to direct that, mm. and then they had to drop out, and Hitchcock said, "I'll do it." That's that's my guess because it did not feel like a Hitchcock movie. It was set in Australia in the penal colony. Really? Wow. You know, in the 1800s. And not a single Australian accent to be found. <laughs> Joseph Cotton was was one of the main actors, and he was doing his American accent. And then Isabella Ros... No, her mom. Ingrid Bergman was doing her Swedish accent. And then the other actors were English but they were all saying that they were from Ireland and it just, it was so strange. <laughs> but I, yeah, I didn't enjoy it at all. And the weird thing is that, that in the making of Rope, there's a picture of Ingrid Bergman and Joseph Cotton and Alfred Hitchcock standing on the Rope set. And so I thought, well, okay, I, maybe Hitchcock had planned on making that his next movie. I just, I, I, I don't know. But I know that that was like a one-two punch. Rope didn't do well, and then nobody went to Under Capricorn. Mm. And Hitchcock had created this new production company called Transatlantic Pictures. Yeah, that, this was the first movie with that, right? Right. And they had a third film that they were set to do. I think it was Stage Fright. And because these two movies failed at the box office or didn't make their money back, they had to abandon Stage Fright. And Warner Brothers stepped in and said, Will... We'll finance that, you know, as a Warner's film. Right. Uh, but that was it. They don't, they didn't, you know, Transatlantic fell apart because of this. They had done a documentary. Hitchcock had done a documentary about the concentration camps in Germany hmm. before they did this. And that wasn't released until 1985. Oh, wow. So Hitch had been dead for six years, I think, by the point or five years by the time that came out and it, they just showed it on television. But I, I, I always feel bad when I hear these kind of things. Like the best example is Orson Welles. He had like 20 movies that they had scripts for and they were about to start shooting or they started shooting for three days and then the financing fell apart and that movie never got finished. And with Hitchcock... I remember when he died, there were still like six or seven films that he was set to film, to make eventually, you know, one day he's got this script and it's where he wants it. And, you know, all they need is the financing or him to feel better. Because when, uh, when he died, you know, that he had it fully expected to recover and be able to make movies again. I don't know how I got in this. Oh, I guess I was just saying... The movie was not successful, and, and maybe we should talk about why. Why do you think audiences in 1948 didn't embrace this movie? 
Well, one one theory <laughs> would be, you know, I think this is the time when when you know color was fairly new, and people were, I think, a lot of movies were being very grandiose in their locations and their sets, and here we are in kind of a you know a sitcom type thing where we're just one one location, one room, or one suite, and you know, just a small group of people. So it wasn't a very big film. And I think, well, I don't know, but I would suspect that, you know, people at the time went to the theater to see something new and grand. So that might have something to do with it. But the other thing that I learned, and I think the the main person that talked about it was again, Lawrence, where he, when he was reviewing the, the original play and going through the the writing of the screenplay for the movie, he saw obvious homosexual overtones to the characters that Philip and Brandon were in a homosexual relationship and that Rupert was as well, you know, and that was part of why they were so close to him as well. And he just, you know, talked a lot about the homosexual overtones to it that in Europe it was obvious in the play that this was a homosexual relationship they were in. And I hope I'm not offending people by continuing to say homosexual instead of queer or something like that. But Lawrence is in my head, I guess, because he kept saying it over and over again. But then he talked also about even though he didn't use all of the same script from the play, You know, he had changed things up to make it more American, having it in New York and and trying to, you know, put more of an American sensibility to it. Even then, there was the Catholic League of Decency that would review the, the film. And they had several marks throughout the script, taking out lines like, oh, my dear boy, or something like that, where it might be perceived to audiences that, that it would tip them off that this was a queer relationship or that these characters were homosexuals. And so I don't read any of that into this movie. And I'm glad that I watched that after having seen the movie so I could kind of go back in my head and think, really, could it have been? (laughs) And, you know, maybe, you know, I guess Brandon and uh, Philip kept talking about they were going to, go away somewhere they were preparing to leave that night and so i guess you know both of them lived in that apartment together but i I don't know i'm sure that's common among heterosexuals and homosexuals so uh, there's there's that part to it Um, but i didn't get any kind of overtones for that but apparently that everybody that was working on the movie knew that and understood that and and I guess initially uh, Hitchcock was was kind of eyeing Cary Grant for the role, but he had backed off of it because he didn't want to be associated with that. I think there was somebody else that he talked about, but that, you know, Jimmy Stewart was kind of known as the Boy Scout. He didn't have affairs with other women or anything like that. He kind of had that reputation. And so they felt safe with, with somebody like Jimmy Stewart, I guess. But I, I, I feel like 
Montgomery Cliff was up for the one of the roles of the killers, and Cliff was was gay. Oh, and he didn't want to take the part. Okay, because he felt it was too gay. Does that sound like what you read? Yeah, yeah, that uh, definitely Cliff Robertson was mentioned in the interview. Montgomery Cliff? Or Montgomery Cliff. I'm sorry, I derailed you. Uh, One of the movies that Hitchcock made around this time was Strangers on a Train. And I remember when I saw that, that was another one that I saw. Uh, Maybe I wasn't, yeah, I was probably like 22 or 23 when I saw it. But I felt like there was definitely that aspect between the men in that movie. There was just something more than... Two strangers. You know, just... uh, (laughs) That uh, they were, yeah, the, they were strangers where there was might, might be an attraction there as well, and I thought, huh, that's that's interesting. But I didn't see any of it in Rope. That, in fact, I, it seems like, and we haven't really talked about the fiance, but it seems like at some point they mentioned that Brandon was involved in a relationship with the girl with Janet. Am I wrong? She had dated Janet, and then she had dated. Uh, whatever his name is, the guy that's at the party. Kenneth. Kenneth. And then she dumped him for David, who she's currently seeing. Just ginger peachy. I'm terribly sorry, but it is a little difficult trying to keep up with your romances. After me came Kenneth, now it's it's David. Why the, the, the switch from Kenneth to David anyway? Obviously, I think he's nicer. Well, he's certainly richer. That's a new low, even for you, John. And then it is revealed that Kenneth had actually dumped her. But anyway, I just, I didn't see any homosexual undertones in this at all. And it makes me wonder if just because it's 2020 and we're used to things being much more overt, we don't pick up on what in 1948 people did pick up on. Right. Like, like you, you said, my dear boy. If somebody said that in a movie today, we would say, oh, they're just English. Like John Reese davies once called me my my dear boy. And I was just like, oh, that's a term of affection. That's so great. Solid just called me a dear boy. <laughs> uh, but maybe in 1948, you know, my dear boy meant something else or could be construed as something else. I, it's hard to say because because mores have changed. And I feel like if this movie were made today and that was intentional that, that these two were in a relationship, we would know it from the very right. beginning. In fact, I, it made me think, you know, that this movie could be remade. Maybe not with the same gimmick, like you said, but this could be remade with an overt homosexual relationship and that would be a totally different type of movie. So Cary Grant turned down the role uh, because he... He thought that the teacher was also gay? Rupert was gay? I believe so. Or at least that was what Arthur Lawrence was talking about. Well, you know, maybe in this pre-Catholic decency, Legion of Decency version, there were stronger hints toward that. And that's what Cliff and Cary Grant turned down, was that script where it was just like, okay, you know, there's a line here and everybody knows what that's a euphemism for. You know what I mean? And so the actual movie that they shot was going from a script with a lot of that stuff toned down. 
But that doesn't explain why people said that nobody went to it because of they were uncomfortable with that. I even read somewhere that it was banned in certain towns. Did you hear that? No, I didn't. Certain cities in America wouldn't show it. Uh, this is the Wikipedia page. Rope was banned in several U.S. cities due to the themes of homosexuality. Okay, so... So, I guess they were seeing stuff that we didn't see. Or they were aware of the English play that might have been more overt. And so they knew what it was coming from. Or, you know, like, like uh, we talked about before we started recording, you know, maybe just having not lived in 1948... You know, maybe there was just things that, that were known or certain things meant it was homosexual. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. You know, like like uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, there was this big thing of a pink triangle oh, on a bumper right. sticker or in the back window of a car or whatever. And if you knew what the pink triangle was, then you knew what that meant, you know. And, and there may have been things like that in Rope that we... Because it's not of the time. Right. Sorry, because we're not of that time. And yeah, we talked a little bit about the Leopold and Loeb killings in the 1920 killing, where there were these two guys. They were students at in Chicago, I think. And they kidnapped and murdered a boy for the same reason of we're superior and we're going to do the perfect murder and we're going to get away with it because we're smarter than the people around us. And maybe everybody who was watching this movie knew that, okay, this is really Leopold and Loeb, even though they have these other names. And that, that helped with, you know, audience association with the gay subtext and, and, and all that stuff. I, I just, I find it interesting in that, I, I remember, wasn't there a scene in Spartacus where the two guys were in, like, the baths, the bathhouse or something like that, and they cut out that scene because everybody knew what bathhouses were for, what it meant. And then it wasn't until, like, the 1980s or something like that, when it came out on video cassette, that they put that scene back into Spartacus. Is, is this... You've heard this before, right? Yes, yeah. And that's the version that I first saw. And I didn't pick up on any subtext at all <laughs> because it was just two guys like in a locker room or something like that. In the in you know, in the period equivalence of two guys in a, a a locker room talking. So I feel like maybe there are things that we miss not being of that that era. So similar to like Top Gun <laughs> where a lot of the scenes are in locker rooms and all the men are half-dressed. Yeah, I, I wonder. I, if somebody saw Top Gun today for the first time, would they be like, wow, this is from 1986? You guys could get <laughs> away with this in 1986? And I think the answer was, uh, we didn't see it in 1986. We didn't notice any of this in 1986. <laughs> I think the the other movie that comes to mind that I remember it was a similar thing. I watched the movie and then I watched the commentary afterwards or, you know, whatever feature they had afterwards. And it was the the original The Haunting. Oh, okay, with the lesbian subtext there. Right, yeah. In 1963, with that movie, 
And the, yeah, they were talking a lot about that. Well, obviously the two women were attracted to each other and had a lesbian relationship or whatever. I was like, oh, really? Yeah, when they remade that in 99, Catherine Zeta-Jones played that role and she really, really amped that up. Amped like the flirtiness and the there was almost like a, a predatoryness to her character, which there was in the 60s version. Was it Robert Wise that did that, the hunt, the original hunting? And yet in the original version, she just seems like a predatory person altogether. Like she's mean and she's dark and nasty and all that. But I guess, yeah, you could see that. Or, or maybe if you knew to look for it, you'd be like, oh, okay, I see what they're talking about there. Whereas in the 90s, they didn't have to tiptoe around it. It was just obviously there, you know, or sorry, it was overtly there. Yeah, I think, you know, definitely the difference in the, the time periods, you know, it was either the, it was the subtext, it was the, in the, if you were in the know, you, you got it. But nowadays it's just out there. And, you know, maybe we don't see it also because we're just too straight, I guess. Or if you hadn't said it, I would have said it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I remember, uh, like, George Michael videos or something, you know, uh, him prancing around, and there were all these super hot women around there, but they were there as window dressing, and if you knew what was going on, you knew that they were just there for me, not for George Michael. And that and I just, yeah, it's it, I guess it's naivete on my part. But, but, but it is interesting, and I, I'm sure that there are certain line readings that we could analyze if we saw Rope a second time and said, oh, okay, this line, I didn't pick up on it the first time, but this is sort of a double entendre, isn't it? Kind of thing. I, I don't know. That, that sort of stuff is really, really interesting. Of This really is a, an analogy for this or a uh, parable about this kind of thing. Right. So, I mean, there's all kinds of layers to this i guess you know you have that element to it and then you have the nietzsche stuff going on and just the basic murder and suspense aspect of it i i did want to go back to what one of the best scenes i i thought and it was classic hitchcock kind of thing and i think you you referred to it as well earlier is when it kind of pans away you know everybody's talking about where's david and and all these kinds of things. And it's kind of after the party. And the maid starts cleaning up. And mm. it just and the, the camera kind of pans off the group of people. And you can hear them talking off to the side. But right in the middle of the scene is the trunk. And the maid is going back and forth between the kitchen or greeting area. Back into the main room. And she gets the candlesticks and takes all the candlesticks back in the kitchen. And then she gets something else and takes up the tablecloth and kind of cleans it up and goes and gets some books because the books were originally in the trunk. And she brings the books and sets them next to them. And just, you know, you're kind of thinking the whole time, oh, she's going to open the box to put the books away. And she's cleaning up and nobody's paying attention. And this is where it's going to happen, where everybody's going to learn. And then, of course, just before she opens it up, you know, Brandon comes over and says, oh, don't don't worry about that. We'll take care of that in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but he comes at like the last possible second, like yeah. right when she's about, you know, she's about to put the books into the 
the trunk or, or, or whatever it is. Um, that, yes, that was masterfully done. I, I didn't mention that, but yeah, it's, it's fun that the camera has been following our actors and then for no reason, the camera just stops and the conversation continues, but it's not for no reason. It's so that we will watch what the housekeeper is doing. Uh, yeah, that, oh, the housekeeper was delightful. What a, what a cool character. Very, very motherly and like fussy o- over these two boys. And, and, and somebody got up on the wrong side of the bed today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I had liked the movie more. I, I, I dig that you liked it. I just felt like it was an experiment and it was just interesting. In the last episode, in the Vertigo episode, I talked about how the remake of Psycho, of doing the 1998 Psycho, was something that somebody would do in film school, you know, as an experiment. I wonder if we can do a movie, you know, or, or you know, a shot-for-shot remake. And that's what this felt like to me is just like, I wonder if we could do a movie with no cut. And, and as that, as a, I wonder if we could, it's fascinating, but I just, I, I was a little bit bored by the movie and waiting for it to play out. Maybe that was part of the effect of no cuts is you start to feel the time you start to feel the amount, you know, how long has the body been there? How, you know, how long has he been playing the piano? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That sort of stuff. Yeah, he keeps playing the same piece. At one point, uh, Rupert even comments on that. He's like, oh, you like that little ditty, don't you? He says, you sure like that little ditty, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, it was this little morbid tune, and he just played it over and over again. I don't know, maybe I should have liked the movie better. Um, You know who I really liked was the girl, was Joan Chandler as Janet. I just thought she was luminously beautiful. And I looked her up afterward and yeah, she's never done anything I've seen. She didn't do that many movies. I think she was a stage actress, but I I just thought she she was really cool. And then, yeah, Jimmy Stewart is such an, uh, what's the word? Like he's, he exudes decency. That's always been something that I've, thought about him ever since I first saw him in a movie as a kid is he just has an inherent decency to him the same way that that Tom Hanks always has yeah it's just a genuine person you know um and I feel like that may have damaged the movie as well because some of the things that he's saying are so dark and cold of, you know, of, of murder being okay for certain people and all that stuff, that I wonder if you had gotten a different actor, somebody who was u- used to playing heavies or corrupt politicians or drunks or something like that, if you, if it would feel very, very different. And I think that that's something that the writer said in the interview that I watched. Yeah, nobody would accuse his character of, of moral grayness or or of being gay because it's he's Jimmy Stewart. Right. <laughs> that to me is interesting. There are certain actors that are a little bit pigeonholed in that way. And, and I think Hanks is the best example of there are certain roles that you just don't give Tom Hanks. I, I, I saw Rear Window recently, which is another Hitchcock movie with Stewart. And oh my gosh, it is good. It and, is. Uh, 
yeah, it's just been really, really fun. In this like month period of time, I've watched Hitchcock movie after Hitchcock movie. And the only one that I haven't gotten to yet is, uh, I think it's, what was the one that you mentioned to me? Oh, Notorious? Notorious, yeah. I had never seen Notorious. I haven't seen that one either. Yeah. Um, but I did get it from the library the same time that I got Under Capricorn. And somebody requested Under Capricorn, so I decided to watch that first because I had to return it. But I still haven't seen Notorious. Uh, but Hitchcock had just this long line of movies in a short period of time when he was just firing on all cylinders. You know, he made... You know, Strangers on a Train and North by Northwest and Vertigo and Rear Window and Psycho and The Birds. And, and these were just, you know, in a, a short period of time where it was just hit after hit after hit. Uh, although I guess Vertigo wasn't a hit. But yeah, they're just, they're all such good movies. And it makes me kind of want to go back and watch everything that he's done. Yeah, I mean, we could easily turn this into an Alfred Hitchcock podcast and just review his movies. That's right. You talked about that. <laughs> and and Hitchcock made a bunch of movies, silent films, you know, in the 20s. And I've seen a couple of them, but it's really hard for me to watch silent films by myself because I just, I fall asleep or I get uh, antsy. But yeah, maybe if people like it, uh, we will do another Hitchcock movie. If you had to guess, how many of his movies have you seen? Oof. I've probably seen 15 to 20 of his movies. Okay, I, I think I'm around there too. I'm around 20. And as he became more and more famous as the master of suspense, they became easier to get. You know, you could go to a video store 30 years ago and you could get some of these later Hitchcock movies. Whereas the original Man Who Knew Too Much or, you know, anything before 39 Steps are still hard to find. Yeah. You know, the movies that he made in Britain before he was Alfred Hitchcock are the hard ones to get a hold of. Yeah. Yeah, because I've never seen the original The Man Who Knew Too Much. I know, I've, I've known it's been out there, but I've never never watched it. Have you seen that one? I saw it as a kid because it came on like PBS one night and I saw on the TV guide, oh, Man Who Knew Too Much is, is going to be on. But I thought it was, you know, Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. Right, And then when I watched it and it was in black and white with this funny English accent, I was really disappointed. <laughs> but, I, and I haven't seen it since then. So yeah, that, that's many, many years. But I have seen some of them. Uh, the Lady Vanishes is really, really good. Is it? And that's okay. a 1930s uh, British Hitchcock flick. And anyhow, I, just keep it in mind. If we uh, start making these faster and more often... <laughs> Then, yeah, there's there's tons of movies that I would like to go back and see again, just to appreciate. He There really never was anybody like Hitchcock, and because he died in 1980, I, I don't know what the world was like when he was a filmmaker, but I, I'm assuming he was like Spielberg, who just had hit after hit after hit, and people would go see the new Spielberg because he'd done it, regardless of what it was about. Yeah, yeah, and he was always planning his next movie, and... So yeah, I th I think we'll probably come back to Hitchcock. He's I'm a fan of Edgar Allan Poe, and and that kind of fits right in line with Alfred Hitchcock movies. So maybe once a year we'll do a, a Hitchcock movie or something like that. That would be really cool. Yeah, like you do a Poe month, we could do a Hitchcock 
month. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. Uh, as bad as Marnie is, it would be fun to do just because Con- uh, Sean Connery is in that. Oh, yeah. I, I remember I have kind of blocked Marnie from my memory because I remember watching that, you know, when I was kind of in the peak Alfred Hitchcock phase. And I just like, oh, man, that's that's a terrible movie. Yeah. He, at the end of his life, he did Marnie and then he did Torn Curtain, which is yep. really bad. And he did Topaz. And I'd say those three are just like, oh, wow, those are some bad movies. <laughs> and that was during that period when Hitchcock just, he couldn't get a movie made. He would develop it and it would get all the way right up to about to shoot. And then it it wouldn't happen. Um, then he made Frenzy in 1972. And I remember as a kid hearing about Frenzy that Hitchcock tried to make another Psycho uh, and that it was just terrible. But I saw Frenzy and I loved it. And this was at like, you know, when I was like 24 years old. Or yeah. Something like that. Yeah, no, I, I liked that one as well. I don't imagine we'll review that one uh, on the on the show because it's the only R that Hitchcock ever did. Some people call Psycho an R, but they don't know what they're talking about. Well, I remember growing up, man, my mom was like, you'd mentioned Psycho. She says, I don't, I never want to see that movie or hear about that movie. She was just. <laughs> terrified of that movie and i don't think she ever saw it but she you know had seen the trailers and and whatever with the shower scene and that was she did not like that i was watching psycho (laughs) (laughs) psycho was another movie i first saw psycho on pbs in that same time period when a man who knew too much was on okay Uh, and pbs was you know the prestige channel where you'd see educational programs and and monty right. python for some reason <laughs> but uh it just yeah i i think i remember somebody saying that they re-released psycho in theaters for like its 50th anniversary and it did get an r uh but i okay. feel like that that's just overreaction it, it's just, if if you could show it uncut on television in 1984 or whenever i saw it then it's not an r Anyhow, I'm sorry. I'm just talking and talking. But as you, as the, the audience can hear, we have more that we could say about about Alfred Hitchcock and more movies that we'd like to talk about. So uh, keep suggesting films to us. And yeah, what's your favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie? Let us know. And I guess I should tell you how to do that. You can go to journeyintopodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested, you can also go to patreon.com slash journey into. And these episodes air early on there, typically months <laughs> earlier, but uh, we're working on that. So check us out over there on Patreon. But uh, yeah, it's uh, been another fun conversation. And thanks for sharing your night with me. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> oh, see? In 1948, <laughs> what would people have thought of that? I know. Uh, here, let me say this at the very end. We are able to do more of these because uh, people support us, because people say that they enjoy it. So if you want there to be more episodes uh, and you want Marshall and I to feel that this is rewarding... Support him on Patreon. Now, you can come support me as well. I have my own Patreon. But supporting Marshall helps us do more of this show. It does. But if you'd like to support Rish, 
just go over to patreon.com slash slash Rishoutfield. All right. Well, good night, everybody. And I have nothing else. No, no, I don't either. Uh, here's to the morally superior man. Yes. Not me. I'm, I, I don't consider myself. <laughs> I'm the David in this scenario. I'm already in the box. You're <laughs> uh, I, I feel kind of like Kenneth. Oh, poor Kenneth. <laughs> All right. Good night. Good night. This could have been the last episode of Outfield Excursions you ever heard. The last time it was available without being altered or sold or without reference to its source. The protection of the Journey Into podcast affects my life completely and the lives of seven others. Co-hosts Marshall Latham and Rish Outfield and their patrons Rob Broughton, Bria Burton, Gino Moretto, Keith Techlitz, and Sir Fake, Sean Connery. And there's one thing that is responsible for its protection. The Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Pitched love to show everybody the set, and we had practically everybody in Hollywood visiting, and Hitch loved showing it off. What was impressive about the set was how difficult it all was to shoot anything. You didn't get any idea that this was a startlingly attractive set or unattractive set, but it was like seeing this giant erector set that this kid was moving around and getting his jollies from. It was amazing, the timing. The stagehands were terribly important on that picture. It was all laid out ahead of time, which he always did with all the drawings. And it was difficult because the walls were on rollers and the furniture had to move all the time. And we would rehearse for a day and then shoot the next day. And many times the lighting didn't work right. So we'd have to reshoot. And it was hard on the actors. It was very hard for the actors to play, for example, an intimate scene with their feet crossing over each other as they climbed over cables to accommodate the camera. Everything was to accommodate the camera. And Hitch was terribly nervous about it. It was very hard to do. It was a gigantic trick. And that's what interested him. I want to break free. You were God, Brandon? Is that what you thought when you choked the life out of him? Is that what you thought when you served food from his grave? Well, I don't know what you thought or what you are, but I know what you've done. You've murdered! <laughs>